Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. It's now four decades since Poland's Solidarity Movement captured the attention of the world. Solidarity was the first independent trade union in an East European communist state. After it emerged in the shipyards of Gdansk, the movement quickly spread throughout the country to organise the majority of Polish workers. It contained different tendencies, socialist, liberal and conservative. Some on the Western left saw it as a potential vehicle for an anti-bureaucratic workers' revolution. Conservative politicians like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher welcomed a challenge to Soviet power in Moscow's backyard. The events in Poland inspired a song by U2 called New Year's Day. The growth of solidarity provoked a crisis in relations between Poland and the Soviet Union. After a tumultuous year, a military coup drove the movement underground. During the underground phase, solidarity lost its character as a mass movement. Its leaders re-emerged in 1989 to take part in the negotiations that ended communist rule in Poland. The new Polish state followed the line of free market capitalism and solidarity union officials mostly accepted the programme of shock therapy, alienating many of their supporters. A political party based on solidarity briefly formed a government in the late 90s, but soon disintegrated. Our guest today is David Ost, who witnessed the birth of solidarity at first hand and later wrote a book about it, The Defeat of Solidarity. I began by asking him why Poland had been an especially troublesome country for the Soviet leadership during the Cold War. Well, I think it goes back way before you say it's troublesome for the Soviet Union, but uh, Poland is always troublesome for Russia, right? Poland, of course, has a long border with Russia. And if you go back to the 1600s, Poland was one of the major countries in Europe at a time that Russia was quite weak. In fact, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a strong power. And in the very early 1600s, uh, 1607, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the last times that uh, uh, Polish forces actually occupied Moscow, right? Poland was always a big power in the region. Russia began emerging as a major power in the early 1700s at the time of the Peter the Great. And at the end of that century, the end of the 1700s, Poland was very weak and did not form the kind of absolutist, really more authoritarian systems that were developing in Russia, in Prussia and in Austria. Uh, And so Poland became very weak. And in fact, in the late 1700s was divided up by the three occupying powers Russia controlled Warsaw basically from 1790s until 1918 with a small intermittent period when Napoleon had invaded, right? So Russia was a major power there. And that always led to, like, even when when a communist party started emerging in independent Poland in the 1920s, Poland became independent in 1918, strong communist party emerging in the 1920s, very sympathetic to the Soviet Union. But it seems that within the Soviet Union, they're always looking at Poland as a potential challenge, as a potential threat. And the biggest development that's important for this history came in 1938, when Stalin, deciding that the Communist Party of Poland had become, uh, in his words, a den of spies, again, without any evidence for this, of course, in any Communist Party, you'll find one or two spies, no doubt about it, but there is absolutely no evidence and history since then has made it clear that this was, well, As we know, this was the height of the Stalinist purges and the entire Communist Party of Poland was dissolved. Leading officials from the Polish Communist Party were called to Moscow. Many of them perished in the purges, died, were executed or were exiled further into Poland. So in the 1945, after World War II, As World War II was about to be won by the Soviet Union, 
they understood that, of course, they needed a strong communist party in Poland. So some of the communists who had escaped the purges in the pre-war period, ironically, some of them escaped by being in jail in uh, uh, right-wing Poland and were not able to come to the Soviet Union. They were called on to form the new communist party called the Polish United Workers Party. And so there was always this kind of doubt and um, distrust that the Soviet Union had for Poland and for the Polish communists. There had been an earlier reform moment or reform opportunity in Poland in the late 50s when Gomułka came to power in Poland, um, to some extent against the will of the Soviet leadership, although he kept Poland as part of the Soviet-led bloc. And at the time, in 1956, there was a great deal of popular support and popular enthusiasm for what Gomułka was trying to do. But by the end of the following decade, he and the communist system in general had gone back to being deeply unpopular. Why had that reform experiment failed? Yeah, Gomułka is a fascinating figure. He was one of those communists who had stayed in Poland during that time. Uh, uh, That's why he had survived that period, was a strong communist, but always with a strong sensibility of, you know, Polish independence. And uh, in the late 1940s, there had been Stalinist purges in all of the East European countries. Gomulka was purged from leadership, put under house arrest, his equivalents in places like Czechoslovakia and Hungary or Bulgaria were all executed. Gomulka was put under arrest. But after Stalin died in 1953, and particularly, of course, after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in February 1956, when Nikita Khrushchev, the new leader of the party, himself denounced Stalin and said that, you know, Stalin had been breaking up the true Leninist party. This caused major upheaval throughout Eastern Europe. In Hungary, of course, it led to a collapse of Communist Party rule, and the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in October 1956. At that very same time in Poland, that's where Gomolka emerged, Right now, as someone who had authenticity because he had been a communist but repressed by Stalin, now reemerges and uh, got the majority of people behind him. The people of Warsaw hurry to buy the latest editions which carry the exciting news that Vladislav Gomuka, Poland's number one fighter against the Stalinist old guard, has been elected leader of the Polish Communist Party. Gomuka's rise to power was documented at the time by Britain's Pathé News. Poland's motto is, there are many roads to socialism, the Russian way, the Yugoslav way, the Polish way. We prefer the Polish way. There is some irony in the situation, for it was Russia's own renouncement of Stalinism that lit the fires of Polish freedom. But Gomuka warns the West, do not think that we shall now fly into anyone else's arms. National independence means just what it says. So Gomoka did encourage some democratization in the sense of greater ability to raise questions, to discuss the uh, recent history. He also made big changes in agriculture. Poland became the one country that moved away from collectivized agriculture to having private farms made deals with the Catholic Church. And as far as the intelligentsia was concerned, there was a period of reform and a period of greater press freedom. But already by the late 1950s, Gomulka was trying to crack down. I mean, Gomulka was someone who had great confidence in himself, in his own abilities to modernize, but really distrusted the left-wing intelligentsia in the country. Now, you know, was the reform experiment a failure? I mean, I it's, think we need to take it more historically. 1956 really dramatically changed Poland and Hungary, of course. I mean, the end of Stalinism was 
brought huge new developments to these countries. It became possible to discuss oppositionist ideas. And there were experimentations on the margins. In fact, it was, I mean, Komulka stayed in power from 1956 until 1970. And under his rule, a new left student movement started emerging in the 1960s with some significant developments and accomplishments. Some of these people went on to become leaders in solidarity. But it was also a time where the working class is becoming stronger. Shipbuilding industry is very important in the 1960s. But then in 1970, there was a um, workers' protest that was violently repressed and uh, uh, Gomulka was forced to leave office at that time. That movement in the late 1960s, or should I say several movements, in some ways it was a forerunner of Solidarnosc. You had successively a movement of student protest that challenged the system and then a movement of worker protest. But those two movements were quite distinct. They developed along separate lines and they didn't come together. Why would that have been the case? Yeah, well, you know, during the 1960s, most historiography of the period kind of looks at the Gomulka period from 1956 to 1970 as this period, what's known as revisionism, revisionist communism. One of the sources of that was uh, the writings of Karl Marx. It may sound funny that the uh, writings of Karl Marx were a kind of contemporary thing in the 50s, 60s, but as some of your listeners might not know, a lot of the writings of Marx, the um, early writings when he was in his 20s and like the 1844 manuscript, a lot of these writings where he's talking about radical democracy were in fact not published and not translated in much of uh, the world until the 1950s. So, you know, right at the time after Stalin dies, one of the big opposition movements within Eastern Europe is a Marxist revisionist movement where they're citing Marx, they're talking about alternatives, they're talking about other socialists at the time. And, um, you know, so it was a revisionist period that brought a kind of revived Marxist thought. But what it also was, was a period where oppositionists are looking to the authorities to change things. So the nature of the revisionism, what that meant was not just reading Marx, but there was a sense that the opposition in Eastern Europe and in Poland were looking to Gomolka, looking to the party leadership to make reforms, right? So the revisionist period is associated with that. And for example, I mentioned earlier that the you know, you've got some radical left opposition movements emerging in the 1960s during Gomulka's time. Uh, in 1964, the famous open letter written by two young historians and Communist Party activists, radical communist activists, Jacek Koron and Karol Modzelewski wrote the famous open letter to the party in 1964 calling for democratization. It's really a kind of Trotskyist argument against the regime being corrupted and uh, uh, bureaucratically organized. It was for real, genuine workers' power. And that encouraged a radical student movement at Warsaw University. So what happened in 1968, because you're right to mention these various movements, in 1968, in the context of this radical student activism and in the context, of course, of the global 1968 and developments around the world, uh, students first in Warsaw organized a strike, a protest movement against government repression. The government then clamped down very aggressively, very repressively, and You're right. Workers were not involved with that. Why not? 
because during the 1960s, the nature of that revisionist movement was always organized towards persuading the party leaders of change. It wasn't a matter of opposition groups trying to organize among each other. So two years later, like the the student movement was repressed very dramatically, very harshly within a matter of months. I mean, there was a big protest in March 1968. Within six months, many of the oppositionists were in jail. Many had been exiled. It became a part of an anti-Semitic purge, which we can talk about in just a moment. But aside from that, uh, it was a real kind of demoralizing period. Then in 1970, in the Gdansk shipyards, and again, the powerful industries when there was a price rise, a big increase in prices, complaints against government speed up, workers went on strike. And again, they didn't have organizations, they didn't have connections with others at the time. So, you know, we can talk in a moment perhaps about, you know, what changed in the 1970s because it was the creation of intermediate organizations the whole concept of civil society starts reemerging as a concept, but the reality in the 1970s was to have these intermediate groups connecting different social strata in Polish society. That created the basis for 1980. You mentioned there, and it's probably worth going into a little more for people who might not be familiar with post-war Polish history, the fact that in the late 1960s there was an openly anti-Semitic campaign that was orchestrated by the party and by the government. Yes, yes, this is this is astonishing. So um, what happened is that in some sense this was really a fight within groups within the Communist Party of Poland, officially named the Polish United Workers' Party. And you had a kind of what we might call a liberal reformist movement that was still associated with Gomolka that tried to open up more. Let's have more discussion. Let's democratize more and more. And in the context of this, though, you had the emergence of a nationalist wing within the Polish United Workers Party, which here's this fascinating and very dangerous uh, 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 development, what they do. So, for example, in the Stalinist period of the 1940s, uh, the late 1940s, this was carried out by Polish communists who were Stalinists at that time, and several of them were people of Jewish descent, right? Pre-war Jewish communists who were communists, not Jews. But this became something that this nationalist group within the Polish United Workers' Party in the 1960s started focusing on. And they say, we are true anti-Stalinists. And look, the Stalinists were being led by the Jews. I mean, a complete falsification of history, except, of course, you can find individuals who had been Jews who were leading Stalinists. And so in 1968, there were at first these protests by student activists, and a couple of, some of them also had been children of liberal Jewish communists, And now this wing of the Communist Party starts attacking the student protesters and saying that, look, these liberal communists who were used to be Stalinists, who are very much internationalist, we oppose them because we represent true Polish communism, true Polish socialism. And we want, you know, to preserve leadership by true Poles. So the Communist Party, this is when Gomulka is losing control and basically gives up to these nationalists led by the interior minister Mochar, M-O-C-Z-A-R, who becomes the leader of this faction. And they start denouncing all of the student protesters, not just for being radicals, 
but they talk about their Jewish origin, their Jewish background. And then this became, because the way this system worked is that party officials throughout the country look to leadership to what the Politburo and Central Committee is saying. Now the Politburo and Central Committee are dominated by these nationalist communists. And so around the country, they started purging Jews, even those who are not political at all. You know, again, it's so heinous because to have survived, to have been a Jew in Poland meant these people had made a conscious choice to stay in Poland, despite it being the place where the Holocaust took place, despite losing the enti- their entire you know, pre-war background. Most of these Jews who stayed were left-leaning people, socialists, Bundists, left Zionists, or apolitical people who were you know, sympathetic to the system. Nevertheless, when the nationalist communists took control all over the country, people who were Jews were being called on to publicly denounce Zionism. This was after the 1967 uh, Six-Day War, which becomes now a big issue in Poland. It's really kind of crazy. And then the government said, well, we, of course, will make it easy for people who don't feel true Poles to leave. So many Poles of Jewish origin and many Poles who were practicing Jews, it was probably at that time maybe half and half uh, of those who were, you know, simply secular people of Jewish origin, and those who were practicing Jews, but nevertheless working loyally in people's Poland, they were pressed to leave, and uh, many thousands of them left. And it became a turning point in the opposition movement, too, because people like these left activists who had been calling on the Communist Party to change that revisionist aspect of the 1960s, in 1968, they looked at the Communist Party and said, Oh my God! This is this is working like a classic National Socialist Party. This is doing kind of purges like fascist movements, like the most radical fascist activists of, of, of pre-war Poland did. So it was a dramatic transformation, and um, you know, lasted a good couple of years, and then. In 1970, I might just say a quick word about 1970 because, you know, 68 movement was ended. The protest movement ended in mid-1968. These anti-Semitic purges lasted a year or so longer. In late 1970, December 1970, is when uh, Gomulka announced uh, price hikes because, um, well, internal economic problems. Workers protested against that, went on strike, marched downtown in major cities like Szczecin and Gdansk, sometimes even went to the Communist Party headquarters and in a couple of circumstances uh, burned them down. So in 1970, some police stations and Communist Party offices were burned down. Uh, And then what happened is... uh, uh, the workers were locked out of the plant. They didn't know it. The workers came to work in the train or trying to get in. In December 1970, there was a massacre. was one of the biggest uh, mass killings, certainly, well, the biggest in Poland in the entire post-1945 period up to the present day, where defenseless, unarmed workers trying to get into the plant are fired upon by Polish army and police. Several dozen, at least, were killed in 1970. Uh, And that led to the um, change in leadership. And Edward Gierek comes and uh, takes over from Gomulka. And he will be there until Solidarity in 1980. We're now going to hear two clips from a British television documentary, The Struggles of Poland. A worker from the Gdansk shipyards talks about their encounter with the new communist leader, Edward Gierek. And a Polish economist describes the new economic policy, followed by Gierek and his ministers. Gierek asked us to help him. And before that, one of the ministers made a statement. 
and began to weep. He's sorry that he's crying, but of course, even a minister is only human. We'd counted on things taking a new turn, that people had understood, that the authorities had understood. Gierek sensed the situation in the room, because here and there tears appeared in people's eyes, hearts softened. And then he appealed to us, would we help him? And I was one of those who cried, we will help. In the years 1971 and 72, Edward Gierek gave priority to removing what's often called the straitjacket from the Polish economy. Gomułka had been an advocate of autarky, that's to say economic self-sufficiency, developing according to your own potential and your own needs. Edward Gierek resolved to radically change this policy and to begin opening Poland up to other countries, especially Western countries, countries with a market economy. Moving on into the 1970s then, as a kind of bridge between those protests of the late 60s and the rise of solidarity itself, you have the Workers' Defence Committee, which involved in its organisation some of the people that you mentioned earlier, such as Jacek Kuron. What was the significance of that? So 1970-71, this was right after this massacre. Uh, Again, soon after the anti-Semitic purge, there's a new leader there, Edward Gerek, but among the opposition, it was a very demoralized time. No one knew what to do or what could be done. In the early 1970s, as I mentioned earlier, Gerek starts trying to modernize Poland. And this became a moment, you know, the 1970s is this period of detente as we call it, between superpower relations. And what that meant is that countries like Poland, which had been subject to a pretty effective boycott on most trade between the Eastern Bloc countries and the capitalist world, as a result of detente, it was possible for Poland to engage in the um, capitalist world economy and to borrow. Gerek began borrowing a lot of money to try to modernize industry. Poland, as a result, fell into the classic, what's often called the third world debt trap, where it incurred a lot of debt and uh, wasn't able some years later to pay it back. But in the early period, 1970s, as I said earlier, these loans made the economic situation a little better. The Workers' Defense Committee arises in 1976, not accidentally at that time, because 1976 is the moment when the debt trap, the significance of that comes into effect, and it really transformed Poland in the second half of the 1970s. So what happened is that a lot of the debts were becoming due in the 1970s, and Poland simply couldn't pay it back. Now, of course, This is also because the West in the 1970s was deep in its own crisis, the challenge of trade unions, strong trade unions on the one hand, challenging capitalist rates of profit. Of course, the oil price hike where you have the rise of the third world and insisting on tripling the price of oil, sending Western economies into recession, that meant that Poland, like a lot of countries that had incurred debt, could not pay back the debt that it incurred. So 1976, Poland announces another big price increase from one day to the next. So here's where we get core, because what happened is that these price increases sudden in the context of a rapidly decurring standard of living led to, again, strikes and protests in a number of areas. The big Ursus tractor plant outside of Warsaw was one of the centers of this. And the regime repressed the workers very quickly. That is, they rescinded the price hikes, but they also um, made sure to catch any organizers and they were put on trial and uh, sentenced to prison. At this point, 
the activists, these left activists who in the early 1970s did not really know what to do, you know, they said, well, look, we have to establish contacts with these workers. Let's try to defend them. So CORE means the Workers' Defense Committee. And it was explicitly that. They raised bail for workers. They got them lawyers, those people who were repressed. For those workers who were in jail, they organized support for their families. They established these ties. Again, that's what didn't exist in the revisionist period of the 1960s. But in the 1970s, you get this focus on independent organization. That's where they start talking. That's where the concept of civil society reemerges. It was based really on East European practice because in the 1970s, and this is what so attracted me in the 1970s, I'm born in 1955, and in the mid-70s, I'm a student, a graduate student. I had visited Poland in 1976 for the first time. Earlier, I'd been studying in Russia, but uh, it was clear in the late 1970s that there is these opposition movements going on in Eastern Europe and, and in Poland. That attracted me very much. And what was so fascinating about CORE was that they didn't set themselves up as a new leader, like core as a political party to try to take power. No, they're an organization that is establishing connections between different social groups that organize on their own. Workers organized to do these strikes in 1976 will organize to defend you. And soon after that, they helped promote with worker activists a committee called the Free Trade Union. Free Trade Unions, that's a direct kind of precursor of solidarity. Let's try to establish independent activity by different social groups. Because, you know, they understood that Poland, and this became true of the Soviet Union too, you know, these were now developed countries. Leftists know the irony that socialism came to power in countries that were economically weak. Again, irony from classic Marxism, who always, Marx always thought, right, socialism would emerge in the context of the richest countries. As it happened, it occurred in the context of poorer countries, and state socialism was about developing those countries fast. By the 1970s, Poland was very developed. And this, these, these group of left-wing activists understood that, you know, socialism really is and it always was meant to be about workers controlling their own fate. Workers, intellectuals, and, and different factories, farmers, people are capable of organizing among themselves. So let's join together. Let's have these independent groups working together. We don't need capitalism. They were all opposed to capitalism. But let's democratize the system. Let workers and students speak for themselves. And CORE became this kind of clearinghouse, bringing together these different opposition groups. And that's what made solidarity possible because by 1980, you now had the connection between different social groups which did not exist 10 years earlier uh, or in the late 1960s. You're listening to the theme tune from Andrzej Wajda's film Man of Marble. Wajda was Poland's most important film director and Man of Marble was a political movie in more ways than one. It was one of those rare films that shaped the course of political events, as well as putting them on screen. Released in 1977, Man of Marble shows a young film student who is attempting to make a documentary about a forgotten figure from the 1950s, one of the Stakhanovite heroes of socialist labour who subsequently fell foul of the Stalinist regime. Wajda had been encouraged to make the film by Poland's culture minister, a rather liberal figure in the government, However, the communist leadership soon had second thoughts when it became a massive hit and tried to limit the number of screenings. Man of Marble proved to be a landmark and helped foster the emergence of solidarity three years later. In 1980, Wajda went to the shipyards in Gdansk, hoping to film a documentary. 
One of the workers told him he had to make a sequel and gave him its title, Man of Iron. In those months of 1980 and 1981, Solidarity didn't appear to have a perspective for the overthrow of the system, at least not an explicit perspective. But at the same time, the very existence of an independent trade union that was much more popular than the Communist Party itself uh, was a clear challenge to the logic and the rationale of the entire system. How would you account for that gap in their thinking if it was a gap? That's what probably made in 1980-81, you know, a kind of reform almost impossible. What do I mean by that? So, yes, you're right that, look, that was the whole nature of the 1970 period of this civil society opposition movement. My first book, I called it Solidarity and the Politics of Anti-Politics. Anti-politics was a key slogan of the 1970s and even of the early solidarity. In other words, they say, look, politics is about foreign policy. It's about, you know, foreign alliances. We have nothing to do with that, right? The opposition claimed. They knew also that they're part of the Soviet bloc and that can't be changed. The Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 1956 invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, and Solidarity supporters had reasons to be wary that that might happen again. And they said, look, you know, because these were new left leftists who were key intellectuals within the Solidarity movement, just like the Western left in the 1960s. Western left in the 1960s is not classically revolutionary. It's not the old left. It's the new left. They weren't calling for an overthrow of the Labour Party government or of the American government, you know, an overthrow and have a Communist Party take power. This was a different period, right? And in Poland, too, they said, look, it's not so central even just to have a new authority take power. Here's where they were part of the new left. These were leftists who were critical of the Soviet Union, critical of top-down revolutions. So they didn't want to change that system, but they wanted to democratize it. But yes, you are right. That creates a very difficult problem for the system. When you have an independent trade union, it does not go well with a planned economy where the government working together with enterprises and with loyal trade unions plans out what each firm is to produce. So there was a sense in which the state socialist system did not really allow for solidarity. Now, I do think that a deal would have been possible in 1981, because as the crisis became more severe in late 1981, solidarity being more active, a lot of strikes, workers protesting, the shortages getting more severe, there were calls for a kind of alliance, a kind of pact, a deal between the opposition and solidarity that might allow for some gradual systemic change. But, you know, conditions weren't there. Brezhnev is still in power. And, uh, I mean, Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power in Soviet Union only in 1985. So the government imposed martial law instead. Ironically, I remember, you know, there were some in the solidarity movement in Poland in late 1981. I mean, some of them who would say, gee, maybe, I mean, this is uh, this is partly tongue in cheek or making sense of the situation. Some of them said, oh, you know, the government did us a favor, you know, like we didn't know. I mean, what could be done anymore? How could you change the system without changing the political system? Uh, you know, and when they repressed us, they kept the myth of solidarity alive. That's, in fact, what happened. I mean, solidarity as a trade union could not exist when it was no longer recognized after December 1981. But as a movement, as a myth, as a slogan, it could very well exist, and uh, in that way existed through the 1980s. While the movement was at its peak in the early 1980s, before the coup, and then afterwards, indeed, 
How did the left in Western Europe and North America respond to it? And how did Western governments respond to it? Yeah, it was fascinating, right? Because on the one hand, you have left governments kind of repeating that, oh, we support transformation in Eastern Europe, but not really that much. And so, for example, I remember reading the Wall Street Journal in August 1980 at the height of the strikes in Gdansk, and the Wall Street Journal itself said, well, of course, it's good that workers in these communist countries are demanding freedom. But they said, you know, from the point of view of investors and bankers who have a lot of money as, you know, Poland owed debt to Western governments and Western capitalists. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal said, you know, as far as capitalist interests are concerned, state socialism is more secure for us because they don't allow strikes. They maintain an authoritarian government, right? Ironically, I mean, cynically, just the same position they took about being anti-radicalism in the third world, right? Uh, And so the major groups supporting that were left-wing movements. You know, in 1981, 80, 81, much of the left had change. Of course, there was still very much an old left. That generation was very much alive. But in 1980, right at that time, there was also very interesting development emerging in the Western old left known as the Euro-communist movement. This was very strong in France, in Italy, uh, in Spain, Spain probably above all. And these were people, you know, again, older communists who had been loyal to the Soviet Union, who had usually maintained their loyalty through 1956, Hungary invasion, mostly through 1968, although some of them turned away in the uh, uh, 1960s. And through the 1970s and 1980, it becomes difficult for most of them to look at the Soviet Union as any kind of a real model of a socialist system. Yes, they had beneficial state welfare policy, But these were paternalistic policies. The Soviet Union, these countries were not a place where, you know, they're giving workers power over themselves. Uh, At their best, they were paternalistic welfare systems. Uh, That could be quite good. I mean, we miss some of their coverage today, but it was top down, not bottom up. And so most of the official communist movement in 1980, when they saw solidarity, a real workers' movement led by Lech Wałęsa, a real electrician, right, who had just been involved in an opposition movement, but no political party affiliation other than that. When they see this solidarity movement as a real workers' movement, most of that old left also turned and became strong supporters of solidarity. As part of the new left, there was widespread support for that as well. After martial law was declared, uh, as I heard from solidarity activists themselves, the biggest support they got were from French and Italian trade unions, that, that were smuggling in mimeograph machines or bringing in money or mimeograph machines to boost the underground publishing possibilities of the solidarity opposition. They were providing all kinds of support. When martial law was declared, then the official governments did begin supporting it. And Ronald Reagan, who became president after solidarity was created, solidarity and you know, August 1980, Reagan is elected in November, becomes president in January 1981. Reagan cynically becomes a supporter of solidarity at the same time that he's repressing radical movements in the West and in Central America. For a thousand years, Christmas has been celebrated in Poland, a land of deep religious faith. But this Christmas brings little joy to the courageous Polish people. Ronald Reagan was certainly keen to make propaganda hay from the events in Poland. After the coup in December 1981, Reagan used his Christmas message from the White House to attack the Soviet Union. 
the Polish government has trampled underfoot solemn commitments to the UN Charter and the Helsinki Accords. It has even broken the Gdansk Agreement of August 1980, by which the Polish government recognized the basic right of its people to form free trade unions and to strike. The tragic events now occurring in Poland almost two years to the day after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan have been precipitated by public and secret pressure from the Soviet Union. The US government even funded a rather mawkish television special called Let Poland Be Poland. Politicians like Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and François Mitterrand took part, along with a batch of Hollywood celebrities, including Kirk Douglas and Frank Sinatra. When the troubles began in Poland this winter, I remembered a song I recorded some time ago. It's based on a Polish folk song. I sang it in both English and in Polish. If I were a politician, I'd probably make a speech right now, but since I'm not, here's the song, and it's called Ever Homewood, or in Polish it's called Wolne Serce. Wolne Serce, leko dusza, mam As a filmmaker, I've learned that artistic freedom everywhere goes hand in hand with political freedom. Yes, Vratsky Donas, I'll come back. Soon, I hope, when Poland becomes Poland again. Let Poland be Poland. Let Poland be Poland. Let Poland be Poland. Let Poland be Poland. Let Poland. You know, this was really just a, you know, a completely cynical display of saying we support opposition to communism, but they weren't really supporting workers. There's no question, however, that that did kind of deorient and to a certain extent demobilize the left. I do remember that, you know, um, uh, being in Poland and coming back, speaking to a left audience. I mean, I myself at that time saw myself right as a, a left critic of state socialist society and supportive of the solidarity movement as providing, you know, all kinds of important ideas for a new left kind of transformation. Uh, after Reagan got involved, it's true that a lot of people on the left started getting skeptical of Solidarność. You know, they say, oh, look, the capitalist governments are supporting it. You know, against them, I point out, although it's not so widely known, that despite all their rhetoric, again, it was the trade union movements that provided most of the resources for solidarity during the underground period. Uh, The capitalist governments talked a lot, but you know, they really didn't want to upset that apple cart. We might recall that George Bush Sr., who was president in 1989, uh, was initially uh, even skeptical, uh, went to Kiev and said that the Soviet Union shouldn't break up and was, you know, wanted to maintain this old Cold War division. So, you know, capitalists were conservative and pro, at that time, superpower domination of the world. They used the solidarity movement cynically without really supporting it. Most of the left were supportive of that, of that movement. And, um, you know, over the course of the 1980s, there was that, um, you know, this kind of interaction. As I say, you know, things began changing when Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power and suddenly within Eastern Europe, different roads were possible that were not possible earlier. What happened to solidarity as a movement in the period between the coup at the end of 1981 and then its reemergence in the course of 1989 with the negotiations that led to the fall of the government? How, how had its character changed if it had changed? Well, yes. Look, when martial law is declared and trade union activity is banned, uh, and you know, for active being active in a trade union or trying to organize it, you're threatened with jail, and the management doesn't talk to you. Then obviously, solidarity could not be a trade union. So, what did it become? It became a myth. 
right? It became a slogan. And, you know, there were a couple of, in some places, there were underground union cells, but an underground union cell is really more like a political opposition group than a trade union. They could not negotiate with management. So, you know, it was, again, very repressive, top-down system for the first few years. Solidarity among the activists kind of broke up into different, different groups. And there was a kind of right wing and a left wing. The left wing was becoming more focused on democratization, but they also... Uh, much of the left opposition started becoming pro-market. And that may seem like a real profound irony. How could the left turn to the market? But here we have to understand, again, the nature of state socialism, right? Whereas I say it was a paternalistic top-down system, right? Providing social welfare benefits, but really preventing social organization on their own. One of the most fascinating, important uh, left-wing sociologists of Eastern Europe is a Hungarian sociologist named Ivan Selenyi, who um, wrote a powerful book in the 1970s, Intellectuals on the Road to State Power. He was forced into exile from Hungary, But Selenyi was always talking about the way that the official leaders of state socialism were preventing workers from organizing on their own, right? And Selenyi even said that in the context of state socialism, introducing some market procedures might even be beneficial for workers. That's because the state socialist system rewarded people who were loyal to the party. So as Selenyi pointed out, you know, what about those workers who were not loyal to the Communist Party, not because they wanted capitalism, but because they wanted real workers' autonomy? And so he suggested introducing some market mechanisms could be beneficial to workers. So that was one wing of this turn. Then also in the 1980s, the Western environment had changed very much. When Solidarity emerged as a movement in 1980, social democracy was still strong in the West. It was weakened, right? Margaret Thatcher had just come to power in uh, Britain, uh, but had far from succeeded in, in destroying unions yet. Reagan was just coming to power. There was kind of strong social democracy there. By 1984 or so, social democracy in the West was in tatters, right? Mitterrand had made an about-face, rejecting socialist policies. These were the heyday of neoliberalism. And in that context, right, you had people who did see themselves on the left but say, Look, we need democracy. The first condition for a left movement is democracy. That requires workers' autonomy, yes, but they also made what I think was a wrong turn, a fateful turn. They also began being sucked up by this new ideals of neoliberalism. Stuart Hall wrote some about this in the 1980s, about how neoliberalism could be an ideology that mobilizes some workers as well. Seems hard for us to understand today, but in the heyday of this neoliberalism, it was an idea of moving workers away from control by state bureaucracies, which of course was the problem in Eastern Europe as well, right? State socialism. So, you know, I think there's some good faith And bad faith. I mean, that's really my account, you know, on the part of Polish oppositionists in the 1980s, some of them who were genuinely trying, you know, like, how could we recreate conditions for democracy being sympathetic to the market? And I think there was some good faith about that. I think there's some bad faith, too, because some of those intellectuals were wary of the great activism that workers, Polish workers had shown in 1980 to 1981. 
And, you know, they wanted to make sure workers did not come back as a strong force. In any case, right, they became, um, you know, calling for a transformation in Poland, peaceful transformation. And the official Communist Party, especially after Gorbachev, becomes sympathetic to reform as well. And that allows the basis for from about 1987-88, then you have the Polish United Workers' Party, the authorities, beginning to talk with some of these left liberal members of solidarity to try to bring, you know, a compromise. And the only people opposing that, right, there were people opposing that from within solidarity, but were mostly a kind of right-wing movement because they weren't really critical of capitalism themselves, but they were definitely more nationalist, right? Nationalist, Polish authenticity, some of that lingering anti-Semitism and anti-Ukrainianism and anti-Westernism that is now very strong in Poland today. So, you know, there was this big switch and uh, but the this kind of left liberal opposition emerged stronger and they were able to make the deal with the party in 1989 that led to free elections, led to the restoration of solidarity in 1989, and then semi-free elections that allowed the first non-communist government to come to power in in September 1989, a good two months before the fall of the Berlin Wall. What became of the movement after 1989, after the turn to a multi-party system in Poland? Yes, well, that gets up to current history. I, I did write, that was a topic of a, a book of mine called The Defeat of Solidarity. And the title uh, gives away what I think happened. And that's the defeat of solidarity, both with a large S and a small S. So what happened is that, you know, 1989 comes, it is the peak of neoliberalism and solidarity intellectuals with the support of Solidarity of the Trade Union, oversee radical um, shock therapy market transformation. And Solidarity the Union supported it. But what happened, of course, is that regular polls, regular Solidarity workers were on the receiving end of this, bore the brunt, huge economic collapse, And a lot of them are very dissatisfied, of course, by this transformation. What happened there? The big problem, the big problem was that while you still did have some people who could still see themselves as leftists bringing about capitalism. Again, I, I, you know, it's, it's really fascinating history to go back to because, you know, I always believe that the way to understand social transformation, especially within the left, is not just for new generations of activists to say our previous leaders betrayed the movement. It's easy to say that. But I think, you know, most leaders make changes because they believe in it. So the most famous example, Yatsek Koron, who in 1964 wrote this kind of Trotskyist open letter to the party calling for real workers' revolution, in 1989 is the minister of labor in bringing about a transformation of capitalism. He himself says, I'm in a weird situation. I still see myself a leftist, but there's no time for leftist politics now. We have to build capitalism fast. Then we can have social democracy later. I think it's a complete misunderstanding of how, you know, any time any kind of social democracy is possible. Uh, But in any case, he and others became very much promoting this market transformation, and they did not give workers any legitimate way to protest. They did not want to talk about the new theme of class. I mean, 1989 meant that Poland, like all these countries, were creating a class society of capitalist society. They wanted to create owners with which had ownership power. They wanted to create a group of workers who, unlike during the state socialist period, did not feel empowered, did not feel that they were important actors there. 
And so there were class developments occurring, but the left could not use a class language to describe any of that. And that opened the way for the real return of a nationalist right, which already in 1990, 1991, starts saying, you know, capitalism as a whole, yes, that's good, because everyone was kind of pro-capitalist at that time, since capitalism was, you know, the enemy of their enemy, and they figured this must be great. But the right started saying, you know, we're not opposed to capitalism, but it's not working well for the workers, and that's because real Poles are not in charge of it. Here you get that kind of language that Polish communists in 1968 used, that nationalist term. And so, you know, they started being critical of foreigners, critical of people who were not true Catholics. Uh, And the irony, which I started seeing in the early 1990s, and as I was going back there, You know, I saw, gee, the left is collapsing because it has no narrative to try to recruit and organize, defend workers who are being who are being hurt by this market transition. Instead, the irony is that the right is supporting them. I would read sometimes Christian fundamentalist papers, newspapers in the early 1990s who they start like defending workers being hurt by the transformation. The difference, of course, is that the right doesn't say that workers are being hurt. They say that the nation, Narud, is being hurt. They try to turn it into a nationalist thing. So, you know, as I point out, social democracy in the West became possible only when leftists started challenging capitalism right? And demanding an alternative and trade unions were forming. The irony in Poland, like in most of the Eastern Europe, was that at that time, people who were on the left were anti-communist, pro-democracy, somewhat pro-capitalist, and they're not trying to organize workers. So they left anger the anger at capitalism, they left that anger to be mobilized by people of the right. And that became, I think, the big the big tragedy. I mean, already in the 90s, I was kind of anticipating that a right would emerge very strong in Poland because workers are suffering and the left is not organizing them. And somebody needs to organize anger in capitalist society because capitalism creates class anger. Looking back now from the vantage point of 40 years and the recent anniversary, what would you say the legacy of solidarity is and how do you think people on the left in particular should remember it? Well, as I wrote in my Jacobin piece, I do think it should be and needs to be and ought to be remembered as a movement of the left, right? Because leftists do need to learn from history, Stalinism today is no big challenge for the left in 2020. I understand that as much as anyone. I also understand, though, that if the left wants to really create a palatable, a good, a decent, a progressive alternative to capitalism, it does need to remember those legacies and to do something better. And so what solidarity shows is a real workers movement bringing together workers and intellectuals who are not supporting capitalism, not supporting private property, are calling for, you know, radical democracy, democratization, coming up with new ideas about how to administer things. I might say, I I didn't mention this, and One of the big innovations of the solidarity period is something that I think ought to be a part of the, you know, Western legacy and the Western playbook today is one of the most brilliant inventions they came up with as the Communist Party was fighting them in 1980-81. They came up with this idea of what they call the active strike, active strike. And it's a brilliant idea. They said, we're on strike but we're continuing to work. 
Now, in the West, that doesn't make any sense, right? If you're on strike, you don't work. But this was a socialist country. They said, well, we're the true owners. We will take over the firm. We're on strike. We're not working for the management, for the state, but we will decide where our output goes. We will send coal to the places that need it. We're not going to let the party distribute it. This idea of you know workers taking control and directing things. What the solidarity movement shows, what I think is so important to the left, is that workers, when they have the opportunity and when there isn't also the, the uh, huge power of capital bearing down on them, right, that they're willing and ready and completely able to come up with their own ideas. Right? Workers, you know, grassroots people need to be trusted, right? Now, the problem, as I mentioned earlier, right, solidarity movement itself did not have an example for how to change the state, right? The political problem, it could not resolve So that's a different issue. But what solidarity shows us, right, is this incredible capability and eagerness on the part of workers to govern themselves, to take self-management seriously. And uh, uh, solidarity movement shows the importance of that and how workers also take that seriously themselves. Many thanks to David Oss for giving us such a comprehensive overview of modern Polish history. If you'd like to know more, I'd recommend starting with David's article for Jacobin, The Triumph and Tragedy of Poland's Solidarity Movement, and his book, The Defeat of Solidarity. We're now going to finish the show with the closing song from Andrzej Wajda's film Man of Iron, taken from the real-life protests of 1970. Chłopcy z Grabówka, chłopcy z Chyloni Dzisiaj milicja użyła broni Dzielnieśmy stali, cel nie rzucali Janek Wiśniewski padł Na drzwiach ponieśli go świętojańską Naprzeciw glinom, naprzeciw tankom Chłopcy stoczniowcy pomścicie ducha Janek Wiśniewski padł Lecą petardy, ścielą się gazy Na robotników sypią się razy Padają dzieci, starcy, kobiety Janek Wiśniewski padł Jeden zraniony, drugi zabity Krew się polała grudniowym świtem To władza strzela do robotników Janek Wiśniewski padł Stoczniowcy Gdyni Stoczniowcy Gdańska Idźcie do domu Skończona walka Świat się dowiedział Nic nie powiedział Janek Wiśniewski padł Nie płaczcie matki To nie na darmo Nad stocznią sztandar Z czerwoną kokardą Zachlepi wolność i nową Polskę Janek Wiśniewski padł Nie płaczcie matki, to nie na darmo Nad stocznią sztandar 